We are looking this afternoon at Article 29 of the Belgic Confession. Article 29, the marks of the true church and wherein it differs from the false church. We believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the word of God which is the true church, since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of the church. But we speak not here of hypocrites who are mixed in the church with the good, yet are not of the church, though externally in it. But we say that the body and communion of the true church must be distinguished from all sects that call themselves the church. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if it maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in chastening of sin. In short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church. Hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. With respect to those who are members of the church, they may be known by the marks of Christians, namely by faith, when, having received Jesus Christ, the only Savior, they avoid sin, follow after righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor, neither turn aside to the right or left, and crucify the flesh with the works thereof. But this is not to be understood as if there did not remain in them great infirmities, but they fight against them through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking their refuge in the blood, death, passion, and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have remission of sins through faith in him. As for the false church, it ascribes more power and authority to itself and its ordinances than to the word of God, and will not submit itself to the yoke of Christ. Neither does it administer the sacraments as appointed by Christ in his word, but adds to and takes from them as it thinks proper. It relies more upon men than upon Christ, and persecutes those who live holily according to the word of God, and rebuke it for its errors, covetousness, and idolatry. These two churches are easily known and distinguished from each other. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, our confession here recognizes a problem arising out of the obligation laid before us in Article 28. Article 28 teaches us our obligation to be members of the Church of Christ as it exists on earth. But that uh, question, that must be followed by the question then, which church? There are many groups on earth that call themselves church. Some are not church at all. Some are church but quite corrupt. And we have to uh, make a distinction, therefore, between churches and decide which church we are going to be members of. Now, this was a problem, of course, at the time of the Reformation, faced by uh, Christians at that time. And the choice was then was not just between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants. That was one aspect of the choice that had to be made, and the differences were quite significant between them, of course. 
But even within the Protestant churches, there were the divisions of Lutherans, Reformed, various kinds of Anabaptists, and even revivals of various uh, ancient heresies at that time. And so this was a significant question, which branch of the Reformation do I attach myself to, which uh, part of this, uh, of the, this church, if we may call it thus, am I to be a member of? And this question has, uh, that was faced by Reformation Christians has only gotten worse in our own days. There are many more churches, many more sects, many more divisions in the church now than there were at that time. And uh, it's a very difficult, practical problem that Christians have to uh, decide for themselves. Um, every, every time a Christian uh, is regenerated, every time a Christian moves from one place to another, every time a, a church goes apostate, Christians are faced with this question, now where am I going to go to church? And on what grounds, especially, am I going to make my decision? Now the confession makes very clear that this is not a decision that is to be made on the basis of preference. What my preference may be, for example, with regard to music, or what my preference might be with regard to style of worship, or uh, with regard to times of worship, or what my preference may be with regard to the people in a particular congregation. These are, these are um, uh, personal preferences that often, I think, do become the basis for making a choice about a particular church. But what the confession is, is trying to lay out before us is that this whole decision has to be based on the Scriptures, that it's the scriptures that will be our guide here if we are really serious about seeking a church where we can best please God and best worship God and best confess his truth in the world. The con what the confession says here is that there are certain marks or distinguishing characteristics of the true church and it is these distinguishing characteristics of the church that we have to look for. So the point that the confession is making, the basic point that the confession is making, is don't consult your personal preferences. Look to what the scriptures have to say. Look to what the scriptures have to say about the church, and let yourself be guided by the church, by the scriptures. The scriptures um, may not lead you in a way that is particularly pleasing to you. You may find that you have to be in company with people that you don't really like very much, or you may find that uh, your personal preferences with regard to, for example, music, you might prefer contemporary music to uh, ancient music, for example. Your particular preferences are not catered to in the particular church. That's not the basis, though, for your decision. Your decision has to be the scriptures, based on the scriptures. And so that's the, the basic idea that we're seeking to elucidate this afternoon. 
What do the scriptures teach in this regard? How is it that we're supposed to make this decision? On what kinds of grounds are we to make this decision about where to go to church? Now we recognize also that the confession uh, deals with a couple of other matters here in this article. In the third paragraph, it talks about the marks of Christians, for example, and we need to talk about that as well, but that's really related to the marks of the true church. It's related in this way, that where the marks of the true church are found, there we should usually find most clearly manifest the marks of Christians as well. Because it's there in the marks in the church which shows the marks of the church that Christians are nourished and fed and guided and disciplined according to the word of God and therefore have opportunity to grow in the faith and become strong and mature. And the third matter that the confession deals with is the marks of the false church, really the question that's the opposite of the marks of the true church. How does the false church manifest itself in the world? And so those are the three matters that we're going to be looking at tonight. The marks of the true church, the marks of of Christians, and the marks of the false church. The Confession mentions three marks of the true church. The pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments, and the proper exercise of Christian discipline in the chastening of sin. So let's say a few words at least about each one of those three marks of the church. First of all, the pure preaching of the gospel. I think it's not difficult to uh, see that this particular mark of the church is listed first, but it's because it is by far the most important of the marks of the church. Anyone who pays uh, reasonable attention to the book of Acts or to the letters of the Apostle Paul would certainly see in uh, very quickly that the preaching of the gospel is uh, a very important idea in those books. The, um, the book of Acts is all about how the gospel was preached in Judea and Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Galilee, and then to the um, Gentile nations around the Mediterranean Sea. It's all about the, the preaching of the word. And the letters of the Apostle Paul talk over and over again about the preaching of the gospel. In Romans chapter 10, Paul connects the preaching of the gospel directly with being saved. How shall they be saved except they hear? And how shall they hear without a preacher? That's what Paul says in Romans 10. And in 1 Corinthians 1, he talks about the foolishness of preaching, which is the power of God unto salvation. And in 2 Corinthians 2, he talks about the power of preaching as both a savor of life unto life and a savor of death unto death. To Timothy and to Titus, he exhorts that they preach the word, that they be faithful in preaching the word. This is the, the great mark of the church, the faithful preaching of the gospel. Now, I think we may say, too, that there are a number of questions you can ask in this regard. First of all, 
you can ask, is the church preaching? Is this group which claims to be church actually doing preaching? In the Reformation, at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had not altogether done away with preaching, but certainly preaching had taken a, a very much a secondary part in the, the work of the church. The, the whole emphasis on the, of the church was on the Mass and on the Eucharist and on the cere various ceremonies of the church and, and so on. So that preaching had fallen into disrepute to a certain extent. There were very few who even wanted to be preaching the gospel. So that's one question. Is she preaching? I think this is a question that's even relevant for Protestant churches today. You find Protestant churches today who, for example, tell the preacher, your sermons may not be more than 30 minutes, or your sermons may not be more than 20 minutes. Or they even do away with the preaching altogether in the worship service on certain occasions, and they substitute something else in its place uh, rather than preach the gospel. There's a great danger, I think, even in Protestant churches today that the preaching is being pushed into the background and other things are beginning to take the place of the preaching. So one question is that, that Christians can consider in this connection is, is there preaching in the church? But a second question, of course, is then, what is being preached? If preaching is happening, what is being preached? And of course, this is particularly the point that the confession is getting at when it talks about the pure preaching of the gospel. The pure preaching of the gospel is the truth of God being proclaimed in the church. There are many, many churches which teach for um, doctrine, they, which teach the people the doctrines of men rather than the doctrine of God. Many churches which have set the word of God in a secondary place and have exalted the word of men above the word of God. Many churches in which error is freely mixed in with perhaps some fragments of Christian truth here and there. So the, the question after asking what is their preaching happening is what is the content of the preaching? Is the preaching the preaching of the word of God? Or is it the preaching of the word of men? And there is even a further question, I think, that may be asked, and that is, does the preaching of the church include the whole of what is taught in God's Word? Or is the preaching confined to certain favorite doctrines? Or certain favorite themes? Paul talks in, the, in Acts chapter 20, I think it is, about preaching the whole counsel of God. And the church has to be doing it. And it's very obvious when you consider these questions then about where should I go to church and what kind of preaching is happening in the church that you have to be acquainted with the scriptures. 
You have to know what the scriptures teach in order to uh, assess the teaching of a church you are considering being a member of. So you have to have knowledge. You have to be versed in the scriptures. But I think that the confessions are very helpful. The confessions of the church in the past are very helpful in this regard because those confessions seek to summarize biblical truth in a, an orderly fashion. And we can compare the teaching of the church then with the confessions after comparing the confessions with the Word of God, of course, to see that those confessions are conformed. And then we may ask the question, is the church teaching what the confessions teach? Or is it making selections out of that, those summaries of truth? So that's the first and most important mark of the church, the pure preaching of the gospel. It's also, I think, the most important mark of the church because if this mark is correct, is good, then the other marks will usually follow from it. The second mark or distinguishing characteristic of the church is the pure administration of the sacraments. And again, you may ask certain questions here. For example, which sacraments are observed at the time of the Reformation? This was a very important question. And today it's an important question with regard to the Church of Rome. Church of Rome taught that there were seven sacraments and observed those seven sacraments very carefully in the lives of its people. How many sacraments are there? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has instituted only two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. So are those sacraments, those two sacraments, which our Lord Jesus Christ has instituted, are they found in the church? And, of course, then after that, does the church administer those sacraments according to the word of God? And here I think the, the question is not as, as nearly as difficult as discerning about the pure preaching of the gospel because these sacraments of our Lord Jesus Christ are very simple. The Roman, Roman church had added all kinds of ceremonies and other pieces to these sacraments and had so thoroughly corrupted these sacraments that they were hardly recognizable anymore in their Eucharist and their practice of baptism. But they're very basic, very simple. The baptism is a sprinkling with water by the, a faithful servant of God in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And there's really nothing else to it. Just this sprinkling with water by a faithful servant of God in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Lord's Supper is a, a sharing of bread and wine, again by a faithful servant of God, as a memorial of the crucifixion and the shedding of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for sin. And again, there's not a lot of other ceremony attached to this. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he instituted the supper with his apostles before his death, we read that he, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat in remembrance of me. And when he um, 
took the cup, he poured it out, and he said, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. There's the heart of the sacrament. It's very simple. But of course, we also have to ask, who, to whom does the church administer these sacraments? That's also an important question. Because our Lord Jesus Christ did not say that we should uh, administer these sacraments indiscriminately to anyone who asks for them or who wants them. This is one of the points of division, major points of division between the Reformed and the Baptists on uh, the doctrine of baptism. And we believe that the Baptists are departing from the marks of the true church, the distinguishing characteristics of the true church, and refusing to administer baptism to covenant children. So there's a second mark of the church, the pure administration of the sacraments. Are they being administered according to the word of God, and as Christ would have them administered? And then finally, there's the proper exercise of Christian discipline. It may well be that many Christians today are completely unfamiliar with this uh, mark of the church. But the confession is relying here, of course, on Matthew 18, where our Lord Jesus Christ laid out the procedure for dealing with those who are Uh, unwilling, at least at first, to repent of their sins. Matthew 18, verses 15 and following, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The The sin is first to be dealt with privately. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And then comes the church's involvement, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen man and a tax collector. Jesus referred to this work of the church again in John chapter 20, when he appeared to his apostles after his resurrection. We read there in John chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And the Apostle Paul refers to this work of excommunication or Christian discipline also in Titus 3 verse 10 as well as a few other passages in his epistles. Reject the divisive man, he says, after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So those are the, the marks of the church. And it's the latter mark, I think, is probably the hardest, at least today, the hardest for the church to um, manifest and to do. And it's the hardest partly because 
of the culture in which we live, which wants little to do with the exercise of authority in the church or the state or even in the home, and partly because so often those who are under church discipline just remove themselves from the church altogether. But it is also one of the marks. Now, the question, I think, which arises as we look at these marks is, why these? Why are these the marks of the true church and not other things? And I think that the answer to that question is that these are the three things which the Lord has given to his church to do her work here in the world. And it is by these three things that the Lord builds his church, that he nourishes believers who are already members of it, and that he brings into the church those of his own who are still outside. The Lord gave the church then these tasks. In Matthew 28, which we read a few minutes ago, he says that they are to go and teach all nations, and disciple all nations, rather, baptizing them. There you have the institution of baptizing, of baptism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe everything that he has commanded. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Paul talks about the institution of the supper and how he as an apostle had received this supper from the Lord Jesus Christ and had then delivered that supper to the church at Corinth and to the other churches that he had established as well. And, of course, we've already referred to Matthew 18, where our Lord Jesus Christ lays upon his church the work of discipline. So this is the work that Christ has given the church to do, and we are then saying that we judge the church by how she is doing in this work that Christ has given her to do. Is she preaching the gospel according to the scriptures? Is she administering the sacraments as commanded by the Lord? Is she exercising Christian discipline in the church as the Lord laid out in Matthew 18? Or to put it more briefly, as the confession does in the second paragraph of the article, in short, are all things managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church. There's the the sum of things. Christ is the king, Christ is the head, Christ is the Lord. He tells us what he wants his church to be, what he wants his church to do, what he wants his church to look like. And we're to look for a church that looks like 
the church that our Lord Jesus Christ has described, at least implicitly, in these tasks that he has given her to do. Now the second um, subject in this article is the marks of Christian of a Christian and as I've already indicated this is closely related to the first uh, subject of the article the marks of the church not only though because Christians uh, true and faithful Christians should be expected we should expect to find them in these true churches but also because those marks of the true church as they're made use of in the church will feed and nourish and strengthen Christians to show these marks. They will not remain babes. They will not be led astray by false teaching. They will uh, be fed with the word of God and they will be uh, guided and disciplined according to the word of God And as a consequence, they will grow and mature in the faith and in the love of God. And so, also, we can look to uh, a certain degree, not only at the church in general, but also at the lives of the members of the church, and ask, with regard to a church, how are the people living? Are they living according to the word of God? We recognize, of course, that dead orthodoxy is possible, at least for a while, that there may be faithful preaching, but the people uh, who are in the church may show very little interest in the truth, may show very little interest in living according to the word of God. But if the church is faithful, the church will address this problem, and the church will address the sins that result from this lack of interest in God's truth, and in obedience to his word. So what are the marks of the church? Well, first of all, or of Christians rather, first of all there is faith. I think we may divide the confession (coughs) discussion here into two parts. First of all, there is faith. With respect to those who are members of the church, they may be known by the marks of Christians, namely by faith. That is, do they confess the truth? Are they confessing what the scriptures teach? Or are they confessing doctrines of men? And secondly then, are they demonstrating daily their faith by their dependence on God and on Christ the Savior? They have to have not just faith, but living faith. As James says, faith without works is dead. I will show you my faith by my works. And so I think we may say the second mark of the Christian is good works. The Christian does good works. And the confession details this in some, uh, at some length in this paragraph. They avoid sin. Do you see the members of the church avoiding sin? Or do you see them running after it? Or do you see them perhaps indifferent to it? They should be avoiding it. 
They follow after righteousness. Are they seeking obedience to the commandments of God? Are they seeking to be perfect as their Father in heaven is perfect? Are they seeking to imitate the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father? Are they following that righteousness which is defined in the law of God for us? Are they loving God and their neighbor? And we should not be vague about this and think that this just means that uh, Christians have to be talking about how much they love God and their neighbor. But this love should be shown. The love for God should be shown in obedience to his commandments. Are they worshiping God alone? Are they worshiping him according to his word? Are they reverencing his name? Are they observing the Sabbath day? Are they practicing those things which God then requires of his church? And with regard to the neighbor, it's not just, well, I I love my neighbors a lot and I'm very friendly with them, but we look for obedience to the commandments again. The second table of the law, which our Lord Jesus Christ summarizes in the words, love your neighbor as yourself. The confession also mentions neither turning aside to the right or the left. That is, are the people in the church steadfast? Steadfast in the faith and steadfast in obedience? Or are they wandering all over the place? Coming back perhaps, but never steadfast. And are they crucifying the flesh with the works thereof? It is characteristic of Christians that they crucify the flesh and its works. Now the confession gives us an important warning in this connection. It says, but this is not to be understood as if there did not remain in them great infirmities. You don't expect to find perfection in the members of the church, but they fight against them through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking their refuge in the blood, death, passion, and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have remission of sins through faith in him. It's very characteristic of unbelievers that they accuse Christians of being hypocrites. You tell us what we're supposed to do and you don't do them yourself. If that's an accusation that can be truthfully brought against the church or against Christians, then something is very wrong in the life of those Christians or of that church. Because what characterizes Christians is not that they are perfect, but that they take their refuge in the blood, death, passion, and obedience of Jesus Christ and seek remission of sins from him. While they are making war on their own flesh, And then finally, the confession deals with the marks of the false church in the fourth paragraph. And of course, it would be very easy to say, well, the marks of the false church are exactly the opposite of the marks of the true church. The marks of the true church are the pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments, and the proper exercise of discipline. And the marks of the false church are false teaching, abuse of the sacraments, 
and a failure to exercise Christian discipline. And you can find those things in this description. But the confession actually gives us a little bit more detailed picture of what the false church looks like. And the first characteristic of the false church, notice, is that the confession says it ascribes more power and authority to itself than to the word of God. I think that's the fundamental characteristic of the false church. It ascribes more power and authority to itself than to the word of God. Now, you may say that that this is really kind of a description of the church of Rome at that time, time of the Reformation, and uh, that's true. It certainly is, it was emphatically true of the church that she didn't really care to have the people of God have the word of God in their own hands. They just The church just wanted the people of God to do what the church told them to do. And the church assured them, as long as you do what we tell you to do, everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. You don't need to know those difficult scriptures. We can uh, give you the word of God in Latin, in fact, a language you don't even understand, but that's okay. You don't need to know. Just do what we tell you to do. The church does not submit to the yoke of Christ. But this is characteristic not just of the church of Rome, but it's characteristic of all false churches. When we talk about the apostate and liberal churches of our own day, what is it that characterizes them? Well, what characterizes them is that they reject the word of God, or they explain away the word of God by new methods of interpretation, or by strange... Uh, teaching about the Word of God, they ascribe more power and authority, in other words, to themselves, to the ideas of men, than to the Word of God, and do not submit to the yoke of Christ. They do not administer the sacraments as appointed by Christ in His Word. They use the sacraments for their own ends. They rely on men more than upon Christ. And here, very strikingly, they persecute those who live holily according to the word of God and rebuke it for its errors, covetousness, and idolatry. I think we may see there a reference to the third mark of the church, the proper exercise of Christian discipline. It's characteristic of the false church that she doesn't use Christian discipline to chasten sin, but she uses Christian discipline to abuse the faithful. Think of the Roman Catholic Church's burning of John Huss, its treatment of John Wycliffe, its excommunication of Martin Luther, its use then of the authority Christ gave to his true church not to uh, suppress sin and correct sin, but to suppress righteousness, to suppress dissent to its own evil ways. The true church takes advantage of the power and authority which it has then to uh, get rid of or to suppress those who want to be faithful and who rebuke it for its errors. They think, in fact, that by persecuting the righteous, they are doing God 
a favor. Those are the marks of the false church. Now, we have, in, in conclusion, problems with this. Not only with the fact that there are many churches, but none of those churches are perfect in these marks. There's not a single church on the whole face of the earth that is perfect in these three distinguishing marks of the church. False teaching will occasionally be found even in the most faithful of churches. Abuse of the sacraments will be found even in those churches which are very careful about how they use those sacraments. The exercise of Christian discipline may be somewhat careless at times or may be oppressive at times or may be abused in other ways ways at times. No church is perfect in these marks. And, of course, there is our own ignorance sometimes of what the Scriptures teach or our own false ideas about what the Scriptures teach. And so we fail to discern properly as we should. But we need to make a choice here on earth. We need to make a choice about what church we're going to be long to, and we need to make that choice based on the scriptures. The church is God's church. He builds that church. He tells it what it is supposed to be like and what it is supposed to be doing. There are many that claim the name of church that are not church. And it falls on us then to use the word of God to judge which church is faithful. Which church shows these marks? Which church is doing the work that God has given it to do? And to join ourselves to that church. We need to, in other words, listen to God to find the true religion and the true church. The confession says at the very beginning of the article, we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the word of God which is the true church since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of church. And discerning requires knowing the truth of God and then asking questions about how the churches around us conform to that word of God and submit themselves to the yoke of Christ, the church's king. May God bless you with his word.